Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, my lovely Betwixters. It's me, Kate Lister. I am here with your fair dues warning. What is a fair dues warning, Kate? Well, I will tell you. The fair dues warning is me letting you know that this is an adult podcast spoken by adults to other adults about adulty things and that you have to be an adult as well. We are absolutely veering into naughty, scandalous, sexy territory this afternoon and you just might not want to listen to a gay sex scandal of the 18th century. And if that is you, I honestly have no idea what you're doing listening to this podcast, but this is your chance to get out now while you still can because fair dues, you have been warned. And for the rest of you, let's do this. Lancelot and Guinevere, Cleopatra and Mark Anthony, and Caesar as well, actually. <laughs> Eloise and Abelard. And let's not forget Shakespeare's star-crossed lovers and Dirty Den and Angie. The great love stories. And you notice that a great many of the love stories that have stood the test of time are actually about forbidden love. We love a forbidden love story, don't we? But the love story we're talking about today wasn't just forbidden. It wasn't just frowned upon. It was illegal because it was illegal for two men to be having a sexual relationship in Georgian Britain. So when the relationship between aristocrat William Courtney and, quote, England's richest commoner William Beckford was discovered, well, it was time to pack up and leave town. Today, we are betwixt the sheets to hear all about the Powderham scandal. Just who were Courtney and Beckford? What do we know about their relationship? And what was the impact it had on their society, on their lives, and on LGBTQ history? What do you look for in a man? Oh, money, of course. <laughs> You're supposed to rise when an adult speaks to you. I make perfect copies of whatever my boss needs by just turning a knob and pushing the button. Yes, social courtesy does make a difference. Goodness, what beautiful times. Goodness has nothing to do with it, dearie. And welcome back to Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society, with me, Kate Lister. Picture the scene, Betwixters. It's 1784. Courtney is a future Viscount and heir to the Powderham Castle in Devon, as well as being called the most beautiful boy in England. He was a proper looker by all accounts. Beckford is a society darling and a novelist and a member of Parliament and very, very wealthy. That boy was making bank. He inherited his late father's entire fortune and he managed to marry an earl's daughter. Ka-ching! So you'd think that they were pretty much on their paths. They were just doing what you're supposed to do when you're loaded and you're an 18th century aristocrat, getting on with it. <gasps> but what is this? You open your papers to have a read of society gossip, what's going on in the scandal columns and... <gasps> Letters have been published. Letters between Beckford and Courtney, which include some rather scandalous details. Courtney and Beckford have been caught in compromising positions before, but it's never made the press. And now they have to flee into exile. Today, I'm joined by two guests. The first is Charlie, the current Earl of Devon and descendant of William Courtney. And then I'm speaking to Amy Frost from Beckford's Tower in Bath. Betwixt the two of them, we're going to find out more about who these men were. What kind of relationship did Courtney and Beckford have? How did it become a scandal? Who leaked their letters to the press? And what impact did the scandal have on their lives and the lives of the people that loved them as well? 
And did their wealth and status in any way protect them from a legal system that executed men for the crime of sodomy? I am ready if you are. Let's get into it. Welcome to Betwixt the Sheets. I'm, I'm going to get your full title right, because I'm hugely impressed with this. Charles Peregrine Courtenay, the 9th Earl of Devon, Lord Courtenay. Have I got that right? Not quite. 19th. Oh, so close. <laughs> but close. Close enough. So close. Do you have a lot of fun with that? Is that fun to, like, whip out on forms or if somebody wants to know your name, they're not really expecting it? Do you give them the full spiel? Because I would. No, I try and use it as rarely as possible. Really? So what would you kind of go by in just day-to-day life? My name's Charlie, and yeah, and I'm a practising lawyer, so I meet people professionally as Charles Courtney, and every now and again I'm introduced as the Earl of Devon, or you know, part of my life I work in the House of Lords, and there you are very much treated as a lord and addressed as such. So I live in various different ways wow. and use different names for different roles, which is interesting. That is interesting. And we are talking about one of your ancestors today. Yes, the Ninth Earl, actually. The Ninth Earl. I don't want to say the ancestor, but wow. <laughs> yeah, so we're talking about him and I think his fascinating life, which, you know, similar to mine, had many different elements and angles. Is this a story that you have always known growing up? Is it just part of your family history or is this something that you came to understand and explore yourself a little bit later on? It's a story I've always been aware of, but in very different ways. And I've been fascinated in it and therefore have researched and sought to learn more. And also, probably more entertainingly or more interestingly, I've sort of offered it to others to research and find out what others think of it. And that's been really rewarding. It's an amazing story. I mean, it's sad and it's fascinating and it does so much to help us understand what sexual attitudes in the 18th century were like. Yes. And you don't get many opportunities to do that because these things by their nature are normally quite hidden. They are quite hidden. And also there's not much heritage for, certainly for homosexual men because they didn't tend to have children, obviously, and they would conduct themselves in those times in a way that was fairly furtive and secret for their own safety and protection. So, and also what was written about them tended to be from the point of view of a sort of outraged, heteronormative society. So you don't necessarily get a true understanding of what they were experiencing and I don't know that we still have that today but you can peel the layers back and try and understand a little bit more about what life was like. Do you feel that you've got to know William Courtney the Ninth Earl of Devon a little bit more or is he still quite far away from you? I'm getting to know him better and better you know every now and again you find a new piece of evidence or a new letter or a new account of him or something that he's done or his family did because he had a large family and each time you find a new angle on him and you know I don't mean to venerate him in any way I'm sure he had many imperfections but the interest is in trying to understand them and trying to understand the impact on a life in that era of being gay. And he was, oh, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I was going to say he was known for being, they wouldn't have used the word gay, but flamboyant perhaps, or there was definitely rumours about him, wasn't there? Yeah, so he grew up at Powdrum where I live with 13 sisters. 13 sisters. 13 sisters of which he was, I think, the sixth child. Wow. And his mum died very shortly after the 14th baby was born. An amazing woman, Lady Frances. And then his dad died only a few years later. So he grew up in this sort of enormous family and quite quickly became almost the patriarch. He inherited what was then the title, which was he was a Viscount. He was the third Viscount Courtney. He wasn't an earl or wasn't considered an earl at the time. So took quite a prominent role. But as you say, he was known within society for a relationship that he'd had as a young man, as a teenager, with William Beckford, who was a uh, a very wealthy, very high-profile collector, author, writer, and known to be not necessarily a gay man, a bisexual man. William Beckford married and had children, but he'd had this scandalous relationship with the young William Courtney when they were young men. And he was very young, wasn't he? His William was only 16, was it, at the time? Yeah, he was a schoolboy at Westminster School when their friendship oh. began, and there are elements of the story that are 
discomforting for that reason because mm. Beckford was a few years his senior and looked upon with modern eyes that there are some really concerning issues around it and I think contemporaries considered it to be relatively indecent and Beckford certainly when when news of the relationship was leaked to the newspapers you know Beckford did leave the country and effectively took himself into exile for a number of years and went about actually on a an extended grand tour of Europe I collecting remarkable artworks did. and such and developing a, a remarkable taste in aesthetics. But leaving the younger man, William Courtney, Kitty as he was known to his sisters, you know, leaving him to deal with the reputation and such that obviously such rumours gave him. Why was he called Kitty? Do we have any sense of that? Was it just a family playful name or was there... Yeah, so a family playful name, and I've, over the years, resisted the urge to refer to him as Kitty Courtney just because it was his nursery name. And you can imagine being a boy amongst many, many sisters in the household. He, he probably would have been much looked after mm. and doted upon. But, you know, the reason that I've tried to avoid infantilising him too much is, look, just because he's a gay man doesn't mean he should be known always by his childhood nickname. That is true. My dad used to call me Scribbler when I was very small, and I, w- I would object strongly to being called that in professional circles today. Yeah, I have a good friend who I knew as Totty growing up. He's now (laughs) a journalist in Formula One motor racing and he doesn't like it when I call him that. No. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, that makes sense. Was it a very loving household that he grew up in then? Sort of like just playful names and stuff? I think so. You know, part of the work that we're doing is trying to understand what was the house Powderham very much expanded at that time. It's an old medieval castle, but it, the family set about modernising it and building amazing rooms and, and remarkable interiors and establishing a really interesting library. And the library itself, his grandfather had actually started the library in the 1740s. And it was, you know, a rare example of a sort of early family library. And you could imagine the sort of education and the learning and the singing. Mm. We got lots of music from that period. And they had a drawing master, a guy called William Craig, who taught all the girls how to draw and William to paint as well. And so there was a sort of real output of creativity and learning. And in this era now, you know, we just had International Women's Day and one of the sort of major global challenges is the education of women and that this idea that a household full of of all these ladies would have access to learning and then take that learning into their own families when they got married, you know, is a really interesting concept. And you'd think it's bizarre that 200 plus years later, we're still dealing with the challenges of society not wanting to educate its girls. Right, absolutely. Let's talk about the scandal itself. What happened, what led up to it, how the story broke as well. And I suppose... I'm always interested in how these things were discussed at the time periods, like in the 18th century. Now it would be splashed across tabloids, wouldn't it? And they'd probably used like lover, this, that and the other, but they wouldn't have used words like that in the 18th century. It was all very just shh. So what happened and how did the story break? So um, the friendship between William Courtney and William Beckford began during the 17th 70s. So take yourself back to the 1770s. Mm-hmm. Beckford himself has recently lost his father. His father was Alderman Beckford, who was the mayor of London and one of England's wealthiest men. Wow. So the young Beckford loses his father, suddenly comes into all this wealth and is sent off around the country to learn some heritage, some culture, visit with some of the great families, came to Powderham and visited with William and all his sisters. And they obviously formed a very strong relationship. And, you know, the physical nature of it, you can only suppose. There's no evidence, obviously. But they did write letters, and some of the letters show remarkable intensity of passion between the two. Beckford is often writing to other people, talking of his passion for the young William Courtney, the young Kitty. He gets them both painted by George Romney, who is the... Uh, most famous artist of the day. And there's a wonderful pair of portraits, one of which is in the United States, one of which is in England, showing Beckford and the young Courtney at the time. Do you think that's like the 18th century equivalent of send nudes? Yeah, possibly. (laughs) They're amazing pictures, actually, because Beckford is... So Beckford has has come of age. He's 20, 21. He's lost his dad. And I think what he sees in William Courtney is himself as a younger man before all of that responsibility came upon him. And he's really taken with the young William Courtney's sort of artistic abilities. He's known as the most beautiful young man in England. You know, his beauty, his abilities. And then Beckford, over his 21st birthday, has this remarkable party organised by Philippe de Lutherberg, 
which is a, known as a phantasmagoria. And he sort of decorates his whole house and has lots of people to stay. And they probably indulge in all sorts of uh, entertainments. <laughs> but by repute, he wrote this remarkable book called The History of the Caliph Vathek over a weekend of indulgence. And this book is sort of one of the birthplaces of the Gothic aesthetic. And the Caliph Vathek sets about trying to experience every sensory experience he can on the planet. But within the context of that story, he comes upon a harem of women. And within this harem of women lives this beautiful young boy called Gulchenruz. And Gulchenruz is the young William Courtney. So he sort of he immortalizes him within his novel. And the relationship goes on, and I think it lasts sort of three or four years of this sort of intensity of friendship. But then Beckford, his father having died, needs to improve his reputation, become a little bit more respectable. Mm-hmm. He has political ambitions. He wants to join Parliament, etc. And so he sets about a political career, and he gets married and has a child. And then they all come to visit Powdrum. And when they're staying at Powdrum, these rumours begin to circulate about them mistaking their genders and being caught in a compromising position. And no one quite knows the facts or the circumstances as to what happened, but the story hits the newspapers. And this is what is reported in the local news that Lord Courtney and young William Beckford were found in a compromised position. And that is sufficient evidence, effectively, to condemn them both at the time. Beckford flees with his wife and lives overseas. They have another child, and shortly after she dies. And William Courtney stays at Powdrum with this reputation kind of circulating around and the sort of local commentators begin to speak ill of him and over the years there's a sort of general souring of the mood around him and actually 20 years later 25 years later someone does press charges against him and he's forced to flee the country so in 1810 he leaves his beloved powdrum and all that he has done here and he moves to new york to manhattan island what were the charges brought against him? What was the... Uh, buggery was the allegation. And who made the allegation? Uh, well, it's a local magistrate in Exeter. And what is quite interesting out of this is obviously William was a Viscount, he was a Lord, so he would have been tried by a committee of his peers in the House of Lords. He wouldn't have necessarily been tried in a typical criminal court. And that he is reputed to have explained that given all his peers were up to the same things... He felt that he wouldn't actually be in that much trouble. And there's this sense that there was a privileged group in society, the upper classes, for whom, you know, homosexuality was possibly a way of life. And they knew they wouldn't be criminally indicted for it. And so they lived almost not an openly gay life, but were able to live with the reputation of being gay in a way that people of less means were not able to do so. You could still be executed for being gay at this point, couldn't you? Yes. And there were a spate of men being hanged around this time. Yes, and I think there was also a shift in morality. If you think of Regency England, of the Prince Regent at Brighton Pavilion, and that sort of life of indulgence and that shift into the Victorian, slightly more heterosexual set of morals that I think you know society probably still holds to this day, And I think he was probably an example of that shift in morality over those times. And there's also another sort of interesting comparison, because I was reading recently research around the expat communities in the Gulf states currently, and how there is quite a party culture around the expat communities within the Gulf states, where obviously homosexuality and alcohol tend to be illegal. But those with money and with privilege and with access to private spaces Uh are able to live a relatively openly gay existence. And it actually reflects quite closely what was able to occur in sort of late 18th century England, where if you had wealth and privilege and a space such as Powderham, where you could create a safe space to be who you wish to be, you could achieve a life that was different from what other people were able to achieve. That makes sense. And I've got the original account of what happened between William and Beckford, and it said that Beckford entered Courtney's room and horsewhipped him, which created a noise, and the door being opened, Courtney was discovered in his shirt, and Beckford, in some posture or other, dash, strange story. Yes. Well, there are a number of accounts of it, none of which are necessarily accurate. Mm. But clearly something happened. Some people say that it was a tutor that spied them through a keyhole. There's been some interesting research done locally recently that suggests it may not even have been at Powderham. 
But one account does ring quite true, and that is that it was actually an argument over the correspondence that they exchanged during the height of their romance. Yeah. And it was effectively a, a relationship that was breaking apart and considerable jealousy and antagonism over who would retain control of the intimate correspondence because it could be very damaging to both young men. And the other slightly tragic angle to it is that the person that really benefited from the expose was the political opponent of Beckford. And he was a gentleman called Lord Loughborough who happened to be married to William Courtney's aunt, Aunt Charlotte. And so there may have been a sort of personal family dynamic there whereby Lord Loughborough was able to gain political one-upmanship by exposing Beckford, ruining his own career and therefore impacting his nephew, William Courtney's life forever after so there's a great sort of personal tragedy to it for him and for the family but also it's a sort of political game as well that's going on there's always reasons behind the scenes and they always are yeah so does he weather the storm of this scandal i mean is the money any help so when i grew up he was always known as the flamboyant and profligate third viscount and he did have money challenges he did spend a lot and he commissioned a lot of wonderful artworks and spent a lot on hospitality and entertaining you know his principal role in life after the death of his father was ensuring good matches and good marriages for all of his sisters which was a an obligation and a duty for the father or the brother and he achieved that in that a lot of his sisters married well and had long and happy marriages and in doing so that required the expenditure of quite a lot of money so he probably did spend a fair amount but not so much as to leave us with nothing <laughs> nowadays keeping you in stockings and gin Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And he ended up in America, didn't he? And built a house on the river in New York. Yeah, so he fled to Manhattan, which is, I guess, where everybody flees. All the good gays go. Yeah. (laughs) And what's interesting, I went over there in November and the house that he lived in no longer is there, but the site of the house is there and it's the most amazing view on the northwest tip of Manhattan Island looking up the Hudson River with a view slightly similar to what you get from Powdrum, which is right next to the ex-estuary, you know, a sort of sweeping landscape down to the water and the shore beyond. And he lived there for only about two or three years. And, of course, England went to war with America in 1812. And so that was slightly embarrassing because here you have an English aristocrat (laughs) living in New York. So he ended up getting interned and he, he gets sent up the Hudson River to live not in prison, but in Given he was an enemy alien, he had to live a distance from the coast so he couldn't be contacted and he lives in Poughkeepsie. And then he moves to Paris after Napoleon falls in 1815 and he lives out his days for 20 years in Paris and never comes home. He did have exquisite taste. I know that he spent money like nobody's business, but he knew how to decorate. He knew how to decorate. I mean, ironically, my dad, who had real difficulties with homosexuality and the family had a real shame around this story. But of course, we've benefited so much. We have an amazing music room at Powdrum designed by William to celebrate his coming of age, built by James Wyatt with a fabulous dome and amazing acoustics. And he commissioned paintings by Richard Cosway, who was a fabulous miniaturist and portrait painter. And he sort of landscapes the park around Powdrum, which, you know, we still maintain to this day, his vision. So it's nice to be able to preserve and enjoy his spaces. Mm. It feels nice that he's kind of getting a proper airing and people are talking about him in this history, because it's really important in sex history. Yeah, it is. And it's, you know, I I don't want to sensationalise his life. His life was complicated Mm. and difficult. But we found recently... His dressing gown, we had a project fixing the roof of the castle and during the lockdown, actually, and we had to clear the attic rooms, or I had to, because no one else was around. And I pulled out this old metal chest and opened it, and inside was a whole jumble of stuff, including this rather wonderful silk-embroidered gentleman's banyan, it's called. It's a sort of dressing gown, and it had a little card on it. It had obviously been exhibited in the 1950s saying, gentleman's dressing gown from the 1780s made from a dress from the 1740s. And he'd obviously taken his granny's wonderful silk dress and got it made into a dressing gown. Oh, and, my God, I you know, That him. was the first object that I've come upon that is a sort of direct link with him. And it still has, you know, in the collar, you can still see the dirt from his neck, as it were. And it's like, oh, here's a real object of him. And we sent it, it went up to the Victorian Albert Museum last year and it appeared in their Fashioning Masculinities exhibition So it sort of instantly went from the attics here to starring in South Kensington, which was rather nice. What blows my mind about this is, as somebody who researches sex history for a living, I know how hard it is to find 
sources and items because it's hidden away. And you find them in your house. (laughs) (laughs) You just go up to the attic and just go, oh, yeah, this really important historical document. It's an advantage being from a family of pack rats. You know, the historians (laughs) who we work with from Plymouth University call the attics the wild archive because it is. It's Mm. literally stuff that's been left and since William's time we've been slightly scraping the pennies together over 200 odd years so we've never really had the time to do the house up or to organize or whatever so we do our best and every now and again we get an opportunity to clear things out and it's amazing what you find and actually one of the most interesting finds was a while back but a a family was clearing out their basement in Hampton Wick in London and came upon a dusty old bunch of books in the coal chute and the books were a set of letters, which were the carbon copy letters from William's agent in London to William in exile in Paris. Oh, my God. And it's a fascinating, it's over about a year and a half, two years in the sort of 1820s, recording all the work that they're doing on the estate and all of the management of his affairs. Because, of course, his successors at Powderham, it was inherited by his cousin. Either William or his successors got rid of most of the correspondence and the records and no one really looked at William for a long time so suddenly to get this glimpse into the way he was able to manage Powderham and the estates around here from overseas over a period of 20-25 years maintaining a really strong relationship with it but never able to come back never able to be here it's sort of tragic reading but also really interesting reading and it casts him in a new light he's not the irresponsible profligate third viscount he's a man who was exiled for his sexuality who loved this place with all his heart and was never able to return until he was in his coffin. Charlie, you have been a fascinating person to talk to and I'm not allowed to keep you here for much longer and keep asking you about your ancestors, even though I really want to. I bet you've seen his letters as well, haven't you? Like actual, the proper, real... Held it in your hand. Haven't seen very little of his letters. I've seen examples of his signature and such like, but we have so little. And where actually I think there'll be a sort of interesting hive of, of information is around his sisters, these remarkable 13 women. Slightly from a gender perspective, we always talk about William the Third Viscount and his 13 sisters. It's like, <laughs> what about, you know, Charlotte, Caroline, Harriet and their nice. brother? <laughs> yes, And slightly course. turn it on its head. But their stories are all fascinating and we've got some interesting work going on sort of piecing them together as well. And we'll probably snaffle you back on the podcast to tell us about them. <laughs> well, maybe. <laughs> we've got a really interesting Henry V story as well, but I'll, um, I'll come back to you on that. <gasps> Charlie, don't, you can't tease me like that. You have just been amazing to talk to. Thank you so much. And if people want to know more about Powderham and about William, where where can they find the information? So we're based down in Devon near Exeter. There's a website at powderham.co.uk. And there's an actually really nice website done by a local historian. Uh, I think it's called William Courtney 1769. And he has done some really fabulous work trawling through William's history and puts together a brilliant timeline of him. And, you know, there is so little heritage in this space. And interesting, New York, they have lots of interest, obviously, in LGBTQ history, but they don't have that many heritage sites of that age. So it'll be interesting piecing that together and seeing whether they can embrace his presence in New York. Thank you so much for talking to me today, Charlie. You've just been wonderful. Thank you. Okay, really nice to meet you. I'll be back after this break with Amy Frost to talk more about William Beckford. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm a spy doing whatever spies do. But what am I going to whip out of my pocket next? Careful. In this special month of Patented, we're celebrating the 70th anniversary of James Bond by having a look at some of the inventions that have changed espionage. From gadgets and their creators to the cars and cocktails that make Bond look oh so effortlessly cool. Join me, Campbell, Dallas Campbell, on Patented, A History of Inventions, where I will have my can on a string up against the walls of some of the best historians in this field. Look forward to your company. Welcome to Betwixt the Sheets. It's only Amy Frost. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. I'm so happy to talk to you because I have already spoken to his um, earlness, to his duke's... To the Earl of... To Charlie. I spoke to Charlie, (laughs) the Earl of Devon, who was absolutely lovely and he was very generous talking about his ancestor, William Courtney, and he had so much to say. And I'm really interested to talk to you to try and find out a little bit more about another part of this scandal, the Beckford side, the person that William was caught having a quote-unquote affair with. Yeah, yeah. So um, William Beckford and William Courtney, this kind of relationship was pivotal in both their lives, really, and changed both their lives. And certainly I probably wouldn't be doing the job that I'm doing today as curator of Beckford Tower in Bath if the events of William Beckford's life hadn't kind of led him to this city. That's a bonkers thought, isn't it? Is that something somebody was doing a couple of hundred years ago and now you've got a job? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Can I ask you, as someone that's kind that has researched this person's life and is in a sort of connected to it and you have a job of it, this is always a tricky one. Do you like him as a historical person? Do you like him? It's a really interesting question because a lot of the time, no. I don't. So William Beckford inherited at just under 10 years of age in 1770 this obscene amount of money from his father. And it's all money through the transatlantic slave trade. Oh, oh, right. So they are claiming in ownership enslaved Africans on Jamaica and he inherits this money. And as you expect from a lot of gentlemen or groomed to be gentlemen of that period, he just spends it. And he is selfish, he is careless, careless with the feelings of others, careless with the lives and the dehumanising of others. And yet sometimes when you read his letters, when you read his journals, you know, knowing the kind of childhood he had and then, you know, knowing because of his relationships with men, he was exiled from his home, he left England for 10 years during which time his wife dies, you read these heartbreaking letters and it's very easy to empathise. It's really easy to feel for him in the situation that he's in. But it's very hard to forget that at the same time he is holding in ownership enslaved people and profiting, profiting wildly from it. Well, how much profit are we talking here? Like, in modern terms, is this billions? Did he inherit, like, billions at the age of 10? Yeah. So, I mean, when his father died in 1770 at probate, so the father's probate, the value of the estate was something around 120,000 Jamaican pounds. So in today, we're talking millions. And, you know, for that time, it was a huge amount of money. So... And then throughout Beckford's lifetime, that fluctuates and it fluctuates with his spending. It fluctuates with the, not so much with the exile. So, you know, his money is still coming in. It fluctuates with abolition. 
and the onset of abolition from the late 18th century all the way through. But at the same time, he doesn't care. He just keeps spending. Do you know, I'm always... Cause, you know, I can spend money like a drunken sailor. I regularly have nonsense turning up in the post. But I'm always amazed by people of this much money. I mean, like, with millions and millions of money. What in the hell is he spending it on? What's he spending it on? Yeah. And it's quite tied up, I think. So he's spending on buildings. And, and that he's would spending do it, wouldn't it? it? That's... objects, yeah. And he's collecting... But you can read that as a kind of he's spending it on creating his own safe spaces and he's spending it on surrounding himself with things rather than necessarily people. That's a nice way of looking at it. I wonder if people in 200 years from now will say the same thing about my Klarna obsession was that she was... <laughs> or, or my late night vintage smashes. Yeah. Just She was just surrounding herself. But he's buying buildings. I mean, yeah, that's going to put you out of pocket, isn't it? Yeah, so he comes back from exile. So the kind of incident at Powderham Castle. Incident, in I love it. In 1784, yeah. Or the grammatical error, as it's called, in the newspaper. <laughs> that drives him aboard, not immediately. So he stays in England for around six months. And then, because the kind of gossip doesn't hit the newspapers straight away, he then hits a point where in 1785, he and his wife decide to leave the country and they go to Switzerland. And while they're in exile after the birth of their second daughter, Beckford's wife dies. And this is sort of a really tragic moment for him. And he spends the next 10 years on and off roaming Europe. So when he comes back to Wiltshire, so the family estate is at Font Hill, Wiltshire, moves back into his father's house and starts building this monstrous building, Font Hill Abbey, that took about 23 years to build, fell down about four times. And it's draining the money. Every penny is going into building this building as quickly as possible and filling it. And filling it, you know, Beckford's collection, the only collection in England really that could rival it was the royal collection. So Holy shit. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And that's also an issue in that it is a really important collection. It's a collection that is important for British art and design, for the development of furniture. So it's a very significant collection, but we can never talk about the importance of that collection without talking about what paid for it of course and balancing that idea of the fact that it's also entirely paid for from the profits of enslavement and then there's also this idea of he's building this collection around him he's building this huge building around him that's like a gallery with a beautiful landscape surrounding it that he spends a lot of time in and that he gets a lot of peace from being in and comfort from being in but lives effectively in sort of two or three quite small rooms within that building. So it's quite a lonely existence, you know, after the death of his wife, his children don't live with him, but he has relationships. I mean, he has, you know, while in exile, he meets someone in Portugal called Gregorio Frankie, a a young man, very talented musician, and Frankie becomes a a long-term relationship for Beckford and comes back to England with him. But you always kind of get this kind of feeling that, you know, he's got these relationships and he's got employees, but he doesn't necessarily have friends. He sort of keeps himself a little bit separate. I think, yeah, I'm starting to see a picture forming of him. I mean, we have to talk about the grammatical error. Why Why was it called a grammatical error? It's ridiculous. It's this really interesting thing with newspapers. So they're not overt. They're not kind of saying Honourable William Courtney was caught in a clinch with Mr William Beckford. They sort of, well, largely because there wasn't enough evidence for that. But it's this sort of drip feeding of scandal or innuendo in the newspapers that culminates. And of course, we have to remember that the reader, it's a bit like the reading public now, you know, everyone on Twitter or everyone on websites now, they know who is being talked about. So when it talks about one of the other newspaper reports said something like a detestable scene acted in Wilkeshire, So they got the location wrong, but because they got the location wrong, everyone kind of knew who it was. So it's like a detestable scene lately acted in Wiltshire by a pair of fashionable male lovers. And that was one of the other kind of newspaper accounts. So it's almost like everyone knows who they're talking about without you having to say their names. And that's how this kind of, without the kind of documentary evidence, the right rumour in the right ear, in the right publisher... It just spreads. 
Okay, so everyone knows, but no one's kind of allowed to say. There are still rumours about celebrities and famous people like that today, aren't there? Things that, you know, they do the rounds on social media, but they haven't actually been officially confirmed. What can you tell me about Beckford's relationship with William Courtney? Because we've heard a little bit about what Charlie thought that William Courtney's relationship would have been. But what's your thoughts? What was Beckford... What was he doing? Was he just getting his end away? Was he predatory? Or do you think he genuinely had feelings for him? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I think that's really important. He was completely in love with him. And we know it from the way he writes about him. And even though... So Beckford was a ferocious letter writer and conspicuous in their absence is letters to and from William. And they we know they corresponded because we know Beckford enclosed letters to William in the letters he wrote to other people and refers to them and says, you know, pass on the letter or the letter enclosed. So at some point they have been destroyed, either by Beckford or by his daughter who inherited. But we know in the evidence that does survive, I mean, the way he talks about him, it's sort of immediate infatuation. It says a lot about Beckford at that time, about how high his sensibilities were, just how romantic he was. And he's writing continually about, I think in one letter he writes sweet WM, so sweet William. So he's constantly talking about, can't wait to be by his side again, can't wait to see him again. So it's certainly, it's a sort of love verging on, not obsession, yeah, yeah. I think there's sort of something about what it tells us about Beckford at this time in terms of like how free he was with his feelings and his emotions. And you see that in the letters that he writes. He writes these incredibly emotive letters. And what then becomes really sad is when you start to see that change slightly in his letters. And that sometimes happens even before the kind of exposure of his relationship with William Courtney. So Beckford was in a relationship with a young man in Venice while he was on his grand tour. And he goes and stays with his second cousin, who was Sir William Hamilton in Naples, and the First Lady Hamilton. There are letters from her to Beckford that are about, you know, you have to be careful, you have to be careful what you say. But you get this really sad moment where, like, he's being advised to be careful about what he says and how he acts and this kind of realisation. He does seem to have been very open. I mean, obviously the letters were destroyed, so there must have been a moment of, like, oh, shit... But, like, for somebody to be writing very openly, even to the point where friends have got to take you to one side and go, you need to be careful, that's indicative of somebody that isn't hiding this, which I think a lot of people find quite surprising for that particular time period. We always think of it as being very underground, very secretive, and here he is, quite clearly living openly. Yeah, I think there's a really interesting kind of moment. So letters to very, very personal friends that you trust are very revealing and, you know, as you know, there's a lot of people who say at that time that write and you know that those letters might get passed around and around a social set, so they might be shared. And within his family, I think his sexuality was known. I mean, it was known that he had relationships with men and women. And so within his family, I think it was not accepted, but it was known. Who was his wife? Did his wife know? Yeah, yeah. So he marries into quite a prestigious Scottish family, which he's sort of connected to anyway because his mother was a member of the Duke of Hamilton's family and he marries in 1783 and while they're on honeymoon they're on honeymoon in Switzerland and there's actually quite an interesting letter where he's writing to Louisa Beckford his cousin's wife who he has also had an affair with right and he encloses a letter to William Courtney in his letter to her and he makes a comment about Lady M so Lady Margaret which is his wife you know, Lady Margaret is not at all jealous and effectively sends on her love to William as well. So I think she was very accepting and very aware. And when the exposure of the relationship with William and Courtney happens, her family beg her to go back to them and she refuses. She won't leave her husband. Oh, that's interesting. And I, I think that has a massive impact on Beckford as well, that kind of loyalty and that she is his closest friend. Wow. And when she dies, he is absolutely distraught. What does she die of? After childbirth. Yeah, oh, so grim. 12 days after childbirth, yeah. Oh, dear. And did he have other relationships with women or was it mostly men? Yeah, so it's interesting 
Before his marriage, we know that he has a relationship with his cousin's wife, so with Louisa Beckford, although she's much more into him than he's into her. Okay. And yeah, we know that he, you know, he had physical, he had sex with women. And what's interesting is that after the death of his wife, there isn't much evidence of him having, or not that I've discovered yet, of him having relationships with other women. With men, yes, but not so much with other women. Wow. So we have this grammatical error situation where he gets caught basically in flagrante with William Courtney. How long did it take him to leave the country and where did he go? So at first, um, it looks like he's going to go almost immediately and then he decides that that is like an admission of guilt. So he goes back to Font Hill. So he and his wife go home to Font Hill for a good six months. And this is the interesting thing about the so-called scandal in that it's not exposed straight away. And there's probably some sort of political manoeuvring behind its exposure in the newspaper. That's really shitty, isn't it? Yeah. And I think there's something about the Beckford family are immensely powerful because of this wealth, because of this obscene wealth. So they are very powerful politically. They're very powerful in the city of London. And there's an idea or it kind of sometimes feels like the exposure of this relationship is about cutting the head off this powerful family, lessening their status and lessening their power and using the exposure of Beckford sexuality to do it. So he and his wife go to Switzerland and then after she dies, he spends a lot of time in Switzerland, some time in France and then Spain and Portugal. And it's interesting what you said about it being more open. I mean, he liked being in Paris quite a lot and certainly around those kind of, you know, 1780, 1781, all around the time of him coming of age. Because in France and in Paris in particular, being gay was less, I mean, stigmatised isn't quite the word. You could be more openly gay in Paris at that time in society than you could in England. And as you could in Venice, um, I mean, you know, the relationship that he had in Venice was quite open as well. And it's because of what it, the exposure that England represents is not just imprisonment. It represents, you know, the possibility of execution. Absolutely. So he goes to Switzerland and kind of hangs around Europe for a bit. And then very sadly, his wife dies and eventually he comes back. How does he spend the last of his days? I mean, what happened? I'm, I'm sensing this doesn't have a mega happy ending, but where does he end up? Yeah, it's interesting. So he comes back to England, builds this huge house. I mean, he's in his late 30s when he returns to England. So he builds Fonthill Abbey and surrounds himself with painters and writers and creative people, but they're all in his employment. Let's hardly anyone come and visit. You know, it's a very private space. And then he runs out of money, so he puts it up for sale and it's like the social event of the year. Everyone comes to look at the auction. And that's when he moves to Bath. So he moves to Bath in 1822. And Bath at that time has really fallen out of fashion. It is not the uber glamorous place that it was in the 1770s. It's sort of where you go because you can't afford London or you can't afford a country estate. So it's kind of the ideal place for him to be. Like Regency Blackpool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we kind of sort of say, you know, Bath at its peak is like Monte Carlo and Bath by the time that Jane Austen starts to write about it is like Las Vegas. It, it, you know, it's a real shift. And, but it's the perfect place for, you know, someone with his reputation, someone who's a social outcast yeah. that you will tell everyone you meet that day if you'd seen him in the street, you know. Nice. And he does the same thing. He lives in a townhouse and he rents a mile-long stretch of land and then builds a 120-foot-high tower at the top of that land to put his books inside and his collection inside and to retreat into. So, And that's Beckford's Tower here in Bath. And he has relationships. So, like I said, he has this long-term relationship with Gregorio Franchi, a man he'd met in Portugal, who becomes Beckford's sort of agent and designer. He designs a lot of the objects and the metalwork that Beckford collects. And yet Frankie also gets married and then, you know, not long after getting married, leaves his wife and comes back to live with Beckford. So, and at the end of that relationship, there's almost a kind of parting of the ways intentionally by Beckford. Okay. Beckford doesn't handle loss very well. So it's like he controls when people leave his life rather than death taking them. So Right, okay. So I think he gets lonely. He gets very lonely, he gets very isolated. He takes comfort in stuff. He takes comfort in the landscape in particular and nature. 
and retreats. You know, I think there's a lot about his life that we can reflect on today in terms of isolation and being kind of rejected and being othered while at the same time, you know, knowing that he's responsible for othering and dehumanising literally thousands of enslaved people. That leads me to the perfect question to end this on, is he's a very complicated and complex character. What do you think his legacy is? I think his legacy, in particular for us and the work that we're doing at the museum and working with our local communities, and I think his legacy is about understanding his life and the narrative or the story of his life and the lives of those that he impacted and why that's relevant to us today. So what can we understand about today, about, you know, the long-term impact of the transatlantic slave trade on systematic racism today, about the treatment of, or the mistreatment of people because of who they choose to be attracted to or who they choose to love. I think there's a lot of things that are kind of relevant that we certainly see is, you know, his legacy in the museum. It's not about, we cannot celebrate the life of someone who systematically destroyed the lives of others, but we can learn from it and we can kind of relate it to where we are today. And I'd like to think, you know, his legacy is that, you know, what we can try and do with our museum is create a safe space for as many people as possible. So, you know, somewhere where multiple voices are telling that narrative of his life in a way that welcomes everybody. Amy, you have been incredible to talk to today. Thank you so much. And if people want to know more about you and more about the museum and the collection and the life of Beckford, where can they find that? Best thing to do is to go to the museum's website, so beckfordstower.org.uk, and, yeah, find out about what we're doing at the museum and come and visit. We're closed this year for a big redevelopment, so from spring 2024 it would be a great way of kind of exploring further some of these challenging but fascinating stories thank you so much for joining me today it's been an absolute treat thank you for listening and thank you so much to charlie and amy for joining me and if you like what you've heard, please don't forget to like, review and subscribe wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Join me again Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society, a podcast by History Hit. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thank you for listening to this episode of Betwixt the Sheets. Please follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use the code BETWIXT at checkout.